We like symbols. Indeed, there's a lot of symbols Christians could have chose between when deciding what would be the symbol of Christianity. Oh, we talked about the rooster that would crow in the morning. Stuart, you're not alone. Michelle turned to me and said, what's up with the chicken? And I said, I don't know. And she said, oh, I got it. I said, will you please tell me? And then I remembered. Why did we choose the cross? It's not a pretty symbol. Nothing spectacular about it. Even just in terms of shapes, there's no architectural marvel in looking at the cross. And looking back through history, what we find is that the cross is, in fact, the most gruesome torture device ever created by humanity as a means of executing and putting somebody to death. Not only that, the social implications of the Roman Empire when they would bring somebody to death through execution by crucifixion included social turmoil as they were whipped, lashed, spit upon by crowds, Christ carried his cross up the hill to the garden, to the place of the skull, the place that we would call Golgotha. His wrist would be nailed to the cross. His back split open by the times that he had been whipped. The weight of his body, the human body, as the cross was dropped into a hole on the ground, would have dislocated his shoulders. Why do we choose the cross? Well, it's sad, if anything. It's a marvel that humanity could come up with such destruction, such destructive elements that we would make the cross. Why not focus on something that at least makes our hearts happy and sing like we've done this morning and singing songs of praise of the glorious morning of Easter? Why not make our symbol simply a round stone to symbolize the empty tomb? Why not the rooster that would cry out in the morning three times? I'd like to be a rooster, chick, a rooster Christian. But for 2,000 years, the church has made their symbol the cross. I say that just so that I can also say that it's not in my youthful ignorance that we say that the cross is important. For 2,000 years, we've decided that the cross is important. It has been the focal point of all Christians' hope and prayers because it was on the cross that Jesus Christ said, It is finished. It was on the cross that our Lord cried out the cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it was in that moment of suffering, physical anguish, spiritual anguish, emotional isolation, that Jesus Christ became the substitution for sins, no longer bearing just the penalty necessary to carry salvation for one, but in a perfect sacrifice became the salvation of all who would put his faith, their faith in him. We noted last week that when Jesus cried out on the cross, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This wasn't something that he came up with on his own. Rather, this was a quotation from a psalm written by David. Psalm 22. 
It's there that we find our focus and our text. We began last week looking at the first part of the psalm as David cries out to God and what many Christians, as they've gone through their Christian pilgrimage, have described as the lonely darkness of isolation. That moment in your spiritual maturity when you've grown in the Lord and walked with the Lord and now you cry out to Him and you feel no answer. Now this is a necessary part of maturity. This is that time when we grow in our faith of God. And and we must look not just at the beginning of the psalm, but at the end. Because it is here at the end that we find that David, even when he was originally writing it, would say, God answered me. Even as I sat in silence, even as I perceived no answer from the heavens above, my God was there with me. Our comfort and our strength is resolutely found in the presence of a God who does not abandon nor forsakes us because of the cross. I'd invite you this morning to turn with me to Psalm chapter 22. We're going to read the last portion of this psalm. Remembering all those thoughts that would have been passing through Christ's mind as He was up on the cross before He died, As he quoted from Psalm 22, I think we can safely say that his thoughts were at least in part on the end of the psalm as well. On what would be accomplished by his work. So then, this will be our focus as we celebrate the resurrected Savior. Before we turn to the Word of God, though, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you with hearts that are thankful to be here. God, I admit that this morning has not gone smoothly. God, I admit that I had to get up and I had to fight my alarm clock and I had to discipline the flesh to not hit the snooze button another time and I had to get my children ready. I had to get make time to make sure that my wife was able to get ready. I had to drive to church. I had to turn around two times once to get my kids their blankets, another time to get, I don't remember, something else. So God, I ask you to help to relieve me of these burdens that do not matter. God, I pray that you would give my heart freedom from these earthly shackles that as I turn to your word, I wouldn't be worried about what comes next. That I wouldn't be worried about making it's a lunch on time that I wouldn't be worried about anything but being in this moment with you. God, I pray that through your word you would speak to our hearts. God, I pray that you would shape us and mold us into the image of your son. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. The Bible says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. 
My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. One of the first words that came from Jesus' lips as he was resurrected. After the disciples came to him, we read in Luke chapter, Matthew chapter 28, looking at verses 5 through 10, that the angel said to the woman that had come to the grave to search for Christ, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is, for he is risen. And he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Watch this. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. What is our reaction whenever we are faced with not just loneliness that might come over us, not just isolation that we might experience for a season, but what is our reaction when God has come to us? What is our reaction when we're able to celebrate salvation? What is our reaction on Easter morning as we rise with our families and we sing, Hallelujah, He is risen? Jesus' reaction was, Go and tell my brothers. Now, this is a marvel. This is not just a marvel in the sense that it, it stands out that Christ would call man his brother. I mean, I could stop there and we could almost just pause and say, consider this, the God of heaven, Jesus Christ, the one who was in the beginning, who existed with God, the Father, who forsook all of the glories of heaven to come to earth, that Jesus Christ calls man his brother. But why is that so significant? Because he calls us into fellowship. He says, come together. Jesus looks forward to the time when they will be together. In fact, even at the Last Supper, one of the other symbols next to the chicken, unless we get fixated on the chicken, we've got to look at the other things too. There is a symbol of the chalice and the bread. When Jesus said at the Last Supper, I tell you the truth, I will not take part in this again with you until we take part of it in my Father's home. He looks forward to the day that he will be with his brothers upon his resurrection. He told those that came to him on the road to go and tell his brothers that he would meet them in Galilee. So too, our psalmist 
David, writing in verse 22, writes that I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. What a marvelous thing that has been accomplished through the resurrection. I think it's so easy for us to fixate on the fact that Jesus Christ indeed was resurrected from the grave, that he ascended into heaven, that because of that ascension, there is a promise of life. And we forget to ask the next question. What is this life that he has brought me into? Loved ones, if you are experiencing the new life of the Savior and you don't know what that life is, what kind of a life is it? I will praise you in the midst of the congregation. It is a life of kinsmanship. It is a life of brotherhood, of fraternity. It is a life of fellowship with other believers. This is why we say the blessing of the resurrection. What would come next on the day of Pentecost as the Holy Spirit descended upon men as their lives were filled with the Holy Spirit. It was not a little bit of the Holy Spirit for this man and a little bit of the Holy Spirit for this man. It was one whole God, part of the triune God, coming to take possession and existence among men. We share in the Holy Spirit. We're guided by the same God. This is why we can sing that the Holy Spirit lives within my heart. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. This declaration is a marvel. It declares our deliverance and it, de it defines our relationship to one another. Now looking at verse 23. I pause just for a moment. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. Now, David uses the theological words that would represent the entire nation of Israel. He calls them the offspring of Jacob. This Israel that the church has been grafted into as we would graft new vines into an old vine. You who fear the Lord, praise God. What stands out to me in this particular passage is the fact that good and well-meaning Christians often offer their condolences and their bereavements and their, their, their trials and their struggles. But we are so slow to recognize all the things that we have to praise. So often do we receive prayer requests and even when we're earnest in prayer. But the truth is, hardly ever do I ever have somebody contact me to say that prayer request from last week, it's been answered. Will you take it off? Now that isn't to say that it hasn't been answered. Because what I have found more often than not when I follow up on such prayer requests, such a person will also say to me, Oh, you're not going to believe it. This is how that issue resolved itself. So you're quick to run to God and to pray. But you fail to come back to Him and to praise. If you fear the Lord, praise Him. If you've been grafted into with Israel, stand in awe in Him. If Christ calls you brother, and then you should praise Him. Even in our loneliness, there is comfort here. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. 
And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Now pause just for a second. At the end of verse 24, our speaker, the psalmist, David, says even in his loneliness, even in his forsookedness, even in his dereliction, he knows that even though he's not seeing Christ respond to him, even though he's not seeing God comfort him in the moment, God has heard my cries. I know that because God cares about me. Oh, because he's God who can hear me, because he's not far off from me, but because he comes to me. Even in the affliction, we now know with absolute certainty and with comfort that our afflictions that we experience in this short lifetime do not stand away from God. This is a tremendous comfort for any Christian going through hardship. Not just that God hears you in your affliction, but in fact that He is able to minister to you. He's able to care for you because He has put Himself, He's subjugated Himself up on the cross. He's made Himself the ultimate sacrifice necessary. Our high priest made Himself perfect that He would be able to identify with man. Verses 22 through 24 embody this beautiful depiction of what is taking place. As David cries out in his loneliness and in his isolation, he looks forward to the time that he will be brought together in fellowship with the rest of the nation of Israel, the spiritual Israel, those that would worship Christ and sing praise to God, those that would know him and fear him, those that would celebrate not only their deliverance from trials and temptations, but also the wonderful and miraculous that has taken place that they could be called sons of God at all. God has no reason, He has no responsibility to make man be able to be called Son of God. He is God and you are not. The fact that we are able to call ourselves children of the Most High is a marvel. And this is what we have to praise. A turn takes place in verse 25. We've talked about what we have to praise, why we get to come together to praise. In verse 25, we get to talk about what is praise. Let's read through verse 28. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Those first two words in verse 25 are particularly interesting. Where does our praise come from? From God. Our praise begins with God giving us the ability to praise Him. So we say we want to run to the congregation. We want to take part in such spiritual deliverance, such wonderful testimonies that may be shared, that we might be encouraged, that we might know that those suffering that we have experienced on earth has not been abhorred or despised by God 
But we want to run to this place and to praise Him. And where does such praise come from? From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear Him. Our praise begins in the heavenly places. Our worship of God begins in His righteousness, in His ability to be God, in all of His goodness and wonder and might. His praise begins in heaven. Such that there are angelic beings at the throne of God whose only job, only purpose in creation is to shout Hosanna before the throne room of the Most High. How then can those in the earthly places, how can you and I today, sitting in this sanctuary located somewhere at 1413 West Denver Street Road in Greenwood, Arkansas, how is it that you and I can praise God? Only. If such a testimony from the heavenly places would come and fill our hearts. Only if it would deliver us from being able to view our affliction as woeful and instead view it as divine might. Only then will our hearts be filled and consumed. Will our minds be so perplexed and fixated on God that praise can really take place. There's something wonderful that takes place when you are in a room full of praise, such that we experienced a moment ago as we were singing. But I say there can always be more. To sing songs, worshiping the Father, does not begin in knowing the words or knowing the tune. It begins in knowing God. A heart that is so consumed by Him that we are able to say, from you comes my praise. There's three points I want to make about where this praise comes from. First, it's from God. Second, it's to God. And third, it's for God. You say, what's the difference between two and four? You have to pay attention. Find out. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him shall praise the Lord. This idea of the afflicted eating and being satisfied, does this not remind you of the words of Christ as He taught on earth? I hear Matthew chapter 5 ringing in my ears, Blessed be those who hunger and thirst, for they shall be satisfied. What is it that we'll be satisfied of? Our hunger? Well, let's talk about what this hunger is. It's not for bread. It's not for meat. It's for God. If you think it's possible to eat popcorn and not drink water, first of all, you're deceiving yourself. It's not. When we drink, when we eat popcorn, the saltiness naturally makes us want to run and get a drink. Whether that's ice cold Coca-Cola, it's certainly not Pepsi or prune juice like Dr. Pepper. It's probably Coca-Cola. We go get something. The Word of God is the same. When the Christian decides to commit themselves to spending time in the Word of God, we run back for more. When we make it a chore, this is often what we see. We read the Word of God, we put it down, eventually we get tired of our disciplines. The beginning of this year... In January, we introduced a sermon series at this church 
focusing on the theme for our ministry. We said that our theme would simply be worship. And what is worship but praise? Praise plus obedience. Also, we introduced during that time a Bible reading plan. If you want a copy of that, you can jump right in. There's nothing stopping you. You don't have to begin at the beginning. You can begin in April if you want. To make it even easier, I also introduced at that time a really simple podcast where you can read along with an uneducated person that can't pronounce all of these Hebrew words and you can make fun of them rather than making fun of yourself. I thought that might be better for people's self-esteem if they could make fun of me. What that's allowed me to do is to watch over time how many people are listening to that podcast. Oh, you didn't know it, but I was watching. And we started strong. For a church that has been running from week to week around 30, there were 70 people listening from January all the way through February. Every single day. That's more than double the people that come to church. Praise the Lord. What's happened in April? We're down to six people listening a day. So now I ask a simple question. Has our worship of God simply, did it begin as a chore? So that we might be able to say, I read my Bible in a year. Did it begin as a routine that we might be able to add something and call ourselves disciplined? Or did it begin from God? Because when it begins from God, it's not a chore. Now it's a hunger that has been placed in my heart. And now when I come to the Word of God, not only does it satisfy me, because I'm reading it and it's not just boring, it's not just overwhelmingly repetitive. Now it's the breathed out word of God inspired by him, giving me authority to speak on spiritual things and to understand him, even to understand what praise is. Oh, it's a blessing that God would give it to me and that my praise would be for him. That inside of me, my heart would be being transformed as I meditate on all the things of God that He has given to me. My praise would be for Him, but it would show up even in the way that I respond to His Word. Verse 27 says, And the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families and the nations shall worship before you. There's an order that is taking place in how salvation comes to happen in the lives of individuals. First, it begins with God. He decides. Second, man's heart is stirred. And then, once man's heart is stirred, man goes and he finds the Word of God, where the Word of God is preached to him faithfully. The Word of God comes to life inside of him because it's not dead, archaic words. And then they remember They remember that they were created in their Savior's image. They remember that they were made for His glory. And then they turn. The word for this is repent. 
That's a bad word. Baptists love it. I think we've forgotten what it means. To repent literally means to turn away. They remember and then they turn away. We've become so obsessed with Christian liberties that we think that we can live a life of faithfulness with God without turning away from sinfulness to approach Him. What have you been saved from? What life is there that has been created for the church through the resurrection if we will not turn away from sin? He has not abhorred the afflicted, but I think he mourns over their ignorance. The Bible speaks of a dog that would vomit and return to the vomit to eat it up. This is often the depiction of a Christian that does not see the necessity not only of remembering their deliverance from God, but turning away to Him. There is no hunger satisfied in such a person. There is no thirst that needs to be quenched because it did not begin from God. My words this morning will not stir you up to genuine worship. They will not stir you to genuine praise. The only thing that will bring us into the the throne room of God to be able to appreciate the glory that He has given us is if we seek praise that comes from God. That we would use it for Him to remember and repent. And that we would direct our praise to the King, the one King, the King who is Lord over all. Verse 28, kingship that belongs to the Lord. This is the two. Our praise is for God, therefore repent. Our praise is to God, therefore praise Him, for He rules over the nations. There is nothing that stands above Him. There is nothing more glorious than Him. There is nothing greater or higher than Him. Our praise must begin with Him. The folly of man that would try to glorify God by bringing their best into the throne room knows nothing of what real, genuine praise is. Our praise begins with admitting that He was right to say that we are like the dog. God, there is nothing in me that I could bring that makes me worthy to worship You. I'm not the Son of God. I was not flayed. I was not put upon a cross. I am not deserving. My sins condemn me before You. But because of You, I can glorify You. Because of You, I can seek You and I can seek Your praise. Where? In the congregation. This is where I have fellowship. This is where we began. So too, it's where we end. Look at verse 29. And all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow and all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. There is no distinction between those who are hungry and thirsty or those who are prosperous. The reality is for every single person on this earth, every person I've ever come to know has either died or will die. 
The Bible says that when that time comes, they shall bow as they go down to the dust. Verse 28 ends saying, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Now who's the one who could not keep himself alive? The answer is everybody. You thought it was a trick question. It's everybody. Everybody cannot keep themselves alive. This may come as a shock. We're all going to die. But they should praise Him. I think one thing that mourns the church as we look at our fellowship can be that over time, across the entire country, we see a decline in the number of people that take church seriously. As much as I'd like to blame the millennials like myself, it was our parents' fault. They did not teach us to praise God by seeking Him first. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. Posterity shall serve Him. They shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn that He has done it. Our hope in Easter is not just in the risen Savior, but I also say this. It is that that same God who drives the church, who guides it, who leads it, who puts all things in place, who is the one where worship begins and the one to whom worship is directed, is the same God that promises that such a succession of generations will not escape this earth until the day that He returns. Even in the days of Israel, we looked at a time when Israel would be unfaithful and still yet within them was found what we call a remnant. A small few who would remain faithful to God. A peculiar and particular group that chose to worship God when all those around them turned away. When a world said, is such thing really sin? Rather than saying, I remember and I'd like to repent, there would be a chosen few. Who would be called a remnant. My confidence in God comes from this reality, not only that He hears us as we cry out to Him, but also in the fact that He promises to preserve His church. That no matter what happens, through any history, any moment, no matter what happens, the faithful remnant Christians shall remain because they will declare His name to the generations. God's story is an everlasting one as He calls us to eat and to worship with Him. Those who look forward to heaven singing His praise already know what they shall experience because they experience it in the congregation. Singing praise and glory to God. We must look that the posterity shall serve Him and that it shall be told of the Lord of the coming generation that there is no salvation outside of Christ. It may be possible to look at the words of the Bible and to say, well, this is some good story that's been compiled over time. I think there's something significant to it. But also, all throughout the world, I think there are some other stories that are somewhat significant. The reality is, the only way we can know God is if He reveals Himself to us. 
Other world religions may claim to have some idea of God, but they will readily admit that they came to such decisions on their own. What do we have that is different? What do I have as an authority to offer you? I didn't come up with it on my own. But that the Bible has been spoken by God, revealed throughout history, progressively to God's chosen people, coming to fruition, all the things in the New Testament that would come to the day that he would call us to repent, that Christ sitting on his throne would bring up this very idea, that the angel speaking to the woman would declare that Jesus Christ is alive. That Jesus said that thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that the repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. That we would be grafted into such a holy and chosen people brought to worship him. That posterity shall always know him. We serve a risen Savior. There is no doubt. A seed and a remnant shall survive in the church until the day that he calls us back. But we must ask, who is gathered here this morning? Should we say that the church is this remnant of Israel? Or rather, should we simply ask, God, how is it that I worship you? Do I seek to do my best that man might praise me? Or do I admit my failing before you? God, do I seek to be seen? Or do I seek to see you? The Bible is clear that what Christ has established is a community. A community of a people who praise him. A people who know him. What's so wonderful about this community is that We have a rather low entry-level requirements. In other words, if you want to come and be a part of us, we'll just about let anybody in. Because it's not on the merits of any person that brings us into fellowship with one another. It's on the merits of what makes fellowship possible. The history of the cross goes something like this. In the beginning, God created the world and everything in it. He decided to create man knowing that he would fall away from him in disobedience. That such disobedience, we would call it sin. That sin would leave a scar that tarnishes man such to the extent that no one can take that scar or blemish away. That it would be inherited from generation to generation, passed down from father to son. That I am a sinner because my father was a sinner and his father before him. There is nothing that can be done to take that sin away from me. I can't do good to outnumber it. I can't discipline myself. I, I can't cover it up. It's there. And the worst part about this sin is that it separates us from a loving God who created us. The worst part about this sin 
is that it separates us from God. As Christ cried out on the cross, my father, why have you forsaken me? He experienced what humanity has been destined to experience since their creation after the fall. Separation from God. But Jesus Christ came to earth to experience exactly that so that he could pay the penalty of sin, which is death. So that everyone, I mean everyone, who believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The payment's been made. Such life that he offers us is more glorious than we could possibly understand. And it's available to you today. Father in heaven, thank you for your word, for the way that you guide us and lead us in worshiping you. God, I ask that you would direct us as your church, that as we sing, that as we worship you, that our worship would come from you. God, that we would repent if we've sought to worship you in a way that doesn't begin in your heavenly places. Father, I pray that you would bring us to know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.